Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, your toaster just can't cool down. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson. I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Pete Wright. Our guest today is co-founder of Prison of Peace, an organization dedicated to training maximum security prison inmates how to be peacemakers and mediators in their prison communities. He's a lawyer turned peacemaker and best-selling author and speaker, and he's here today to help us de-escalate conflict in the divorce process. Doug Knoll, welcome to The Toaster. Hey, guys. <laughs> Sounds like it's going to be a hot seat today. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I mean, are you comparing you know, Pete and I to guys on death row? I mean, oh, I what's know. going on here? I have to, to ask, first and foremost, just to get, get this out of the way, how did you get into, briefly, into the, the prison of peace business? It sounds like just such a, a fascinating pivot. My, my dear friend and colleague, Laurel Coffer, received a letter from a woman serving a life sentence without possibility of parole in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world in August of 2009. She read the letter and at her mailbox, picked up the phone and called me and said, read it to me and said, what do you think? And what this woman was asking for were, was for Laurel to come into the prison and train about 150 women, all of them lifers, how to mediate violence and stop the violence because they were tired of it. And we said yes. And it took us six months to get approval from the administration, the prison bureaucracy is unbelievable. Uh, I thought six we, months was good. <laughs> well, I'm in the I divorce world, hard. man. We, uh, we ended up teaching our first cohort of women, 15 women, in April of 2010 and spent three years in that prison. And then it was made it sustainable. Our program, we, we've designed the program to become sustaining. So we teach, teach our students how to become trainers so they don't need us. And then that prison was repurposed to a men's prison, and we came back and did the same thing with the men. And finally, the state started seeing the results we were getting and started funding us with grants. And today, we're in 15 California prisons, 12 prisons in Greece, a prison in Connecticut, which is going to expand to the full state of Connecticut, we think. Uh, we're, we're talking to Colorado. We've got a project that's going to start in Denmark project in Nairobi. I mean, we're, it, it's just unbelievable how it's grown. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic project. And, and, you know, the, the website, um, is, uh, prison, prison of peace, uh, dot org, prison of peace dot org. Uh, there is a video right on the front page that is, uh, that is just chock full of, uh, people who've been through the program who are inmates, uh, and it is just lovely. I mean, it's, it is lovely to watch. And I feel like it really sets the table for the conversation we're having today. Like, if you can, uh, if you can go in and de-escalate arguments in a, in a prison institution, surely you have something to contribute to de-escalating <laughs> conflict in divorce. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So, Let's talk then, Seth. We'll just sit back and tell us how it's done. Yeah, right. right. Well, it, it really is like what I'm, I'm curious from your perspective to get to the bottom of why, uh, uh, why arguments start and then spin out of control in the divorce process. Where does, what is the root of that? Sure. Or in any process. It, it all has to do with emotions. One of the great problems we have in fighting all of this, because I've mediated, I did, I, when I was a trial lawyer, I was a commercial and business trial lawyer for 22 years, tried a lot of jury trials. I only did one divorce when I was a brand new lawyer. 
and decided that wasn't for me. But the problem is emotions. And what happens is that we are uh, 96% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional and raise emotionally dysfunctional adults. And this has gone on for generation after generation after generation. So we have, we're in these adult bodies and we have a facade of maturity. But whenever there's any kind of stress or upset, we revert back to being four or five, six years old because we've never been trained how to become emotionally competent. And it's a skill that has to be learned, just like riding a bike. So you get into a, a relationship, an intimate relationship. And in many cases, the people coming into the relationship do not have the tools to deal with the conflict that arise, that is going to normal, will normally arise because they just have not, they don't have any good role models and they don't have a specific training of the skills necessary to keep a problem from escalating out of control. And so, so what happens is, Somebody does something or says something, or maybe there's a simmering anger or resentment, typically. Or maybe it goes back to childhood. You know, I'm never good enough. You, you, you know, you, you never do enough for me. That, whatever it might be. And there's a trigger. One or both parties gets extremely emotional. And at that moment, the emotional centers of their brain take over. Their prefrontal cortex shuts down. And they go back to all the reactive programming of childhood. And if you've ever noticed in an argument or a fight, the the voices escalate. It's louder and louder and louder. That's because we it's the instinctive response of trying to be heard. It's like sitting across a river trying to shout at somebody across a river. And we, we raise our voices because we're not being heard and we we need to be heard. Of course, we're not listening to the other person either. <laughs> so it becomes it becomes a battle of who's going to shout the loudest. But it goes nowhere because nobody knows how to listen. And nobody knows how to truly, truly reflect what the other person is saying. And that's the problem. And that's where it all starts. Doug, in that hypothetical and scenario that gets played out across divorces and people fighting all day long every day, is that one way to check yourself when you hear your voice rise to say, wait a minute, I need to slow down? Yeah, if you've got good, if if you've got the emotional control to regulate at that point in time, you probably won't be raising your voice in the first place. Because this is happening unconsciously, pre-conscious. Sure. Yeah, but that was my thought, is that if it happens pre-consciously, and as I talk over you and raise my voice to be heard, if I hear myself doing that, it's now a conscious thing where I can be like, slow down, stop talking. If you can do that, absolutely. There's that, that absolutely, that's part of what we call emotional self-awareness and emotional self-regulation, two of the three elements of emotional competency. What's the third? Yeah, the yeah. third one's empathy, cognitive and affective empathy. And what's interesting is the way you learn emotional self-awareness and emotional self-regulation is by learning empathy first, cognitive empathy, which is the skill that I teach, that I discovered. We should we should start there and, and how that plays out, because so much of what you're talking about, it feels to me like, uh, you know, if if you were aware of these things in in yourself and in your relationship, you probably uh, might have had a, a a better ability to handle natural conflict in the marriage, <laughs> which may have saved you from divorce. Uh, but, you know, from our perspective, by the time by the time they're listening to this show, 
I, my assumption is usually you're in the you're you're either ready readying yourself to enter into the divorce process, and so I, my hope is that you listen to this episode and walk away with some tools or some new ways to think about how you manage your own emotional sort of world. I'm going to give you one tool that works both ways. It works on your spouse or ex-spouse, and it works on yourself as well. It's equally powerful, and it's this is all based on neuroscience. Let's suppose that you, there's an incipient confrontation, argument forming. The first thing you do is you ignore the words. Your partner is shouting at you, screaming at you, spitting in your face, spitting angry. You just ignore the words. You've heard these words all before. There's no news here. You, there is no reason for you to listen to those words. Make it white noise. And that will prevent you from getting triggered. The second step is to read the emotions, the emotional data that your partner is projecting. And I'll, I'll go into more detail in, in, in how we do that in a minute. It's natural. It's innate. It's easy to do. But because of our cultural bias against emotional competency, we never learn how to do it. And then the third step is as we start perceiving the emotional data of the, of our partner, we reflect back that emotional experience with a simple use statement. So Pete, I might say something like, man, Pete, you are really pissed off. You're angry. You're upset. You're frustrated. You don't feel like you're being respected. You feel like you're being completely ignored. You're not being supported. You, you just feel you, you just the whole thing just really is pissing you off. And, and it's making you anxious, too. And you're scared because you don't know what's going to happen next. And you get a little you, you get a little embarrassed when you blow your top because you don't want to, but you do because you can't control yourself. And the whole thing is just making it really sad. And at the end of the day, you feel completely abandoned. You feel unloved and you feel unlovable, like a complete reject. You're saying this to the person who's blowing up. Let's say I'm I'm escalating. That's right. Now, what happens when I do this <clears throat> with the brain scanning study show is that when I label your emotions this way, it has an effect of immediately inhibiting the emotional centers of the brain, primarily the amygdala, but also other limbic systems in the brain that are related to emotions. And at the same time, and this is where what this study was so um, counterintuitive, nobody knew this, we were going to see this, is that it activates the right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex, which is the executive function of our brain. So as I label your emotions, two things happen. You, uh, your brain immediately begins to deescalate emotionally. And at the same time, the thinking part of your brain comes online and you regain control of yourself. And the whole process takes 60 to 90 seconds. And it works. It works every single time. It is super counterintuitive because I, I hear you talking about it and I'm kind of living in my head right now. And the, my expectation would be if we were doing this in a conflict situation, that you labeling those things about me would be triggering and that would set me off even further. They absolutely do not. They do exactly the opposite. That's why it's so counterintuitive. Yeah. I'm going to put this in the dumb lawyer explanation <laughs> that Pete just did very eloquently. I would have been like, fuck you. Don't tell me what I'm thinking about. <laughs> All right. Sometimes you get sometimes you get that response. Who the fuck do you think you are? My, my yeah. psych, psych, psychiatrist? Yeah, stop, right. yeah. stop yeah. fucking psychoanalyzing very, me. It, right. It happens very rarely. But when it does happen, it's an indication of tremendous success. How so? Because what has happened is that you have... This person who's really angry has built up a wall, a barrier, probably emotionally shut down, emotionally wounded, has built up all these barriers around their emotional life, has never felt emotionally safe. Most people never do feel emotionally safe. And so, and you, like a superhero, you 
you've just penetrated through all those walls and barriers and seen this person for who he or she really is. And it scares the crap out of them. And that's where you get the pushback. So what you do is you stop, back off, give it 15 minutes, and then you come back and you're a little more subtle about it, more nuanced. Maybe you don't lay on as many emotions. Maybe you say, oh, man, you're really pissed off. And then stop. And that's all you say. You just drop it. Um, So you do get that pushback, but not very rarely. Very rarely. That's fascinating. I, uh, well, I want to try it, uh, first of all. So, Seth, get ready because (laughs) buckle up, (laughs) buckle up, buttercup. Uh, what's so what's next? Let's assume that you have reengaged my executive functioning. You've reengaged the thinking centers of my brain and I'm able to kind of calm down a little bit in terms of, of, conflict that that i assume is the uh that was the empathetic stage i'm rediscovering how to okay so so you get you're looking for four 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 unconscious relaxation response so you're going to get a nodding of the head uh the person's going to say something like yeah or exactly or damn right that's exactly right something like that a really strong affirmation you're going to get a dropping of the shoulders and you're going to get an exhalation a sigh of relief (sighs) finally got me when you've gotten to that stage, you can stop because you, you've now de-escalated. And you, you follow up as a simple question. What do we need to do? What do we need to do? How do we solve this problem? And now they're in a space where they've been, they, they're extremely grateful because you've taken the time to listen to them. So they feel validated. I call it listening them into existence. You've listened them into existence. They feel heard. They feel like you really get them. And now you can problem solve negotiation, you know, whatever it might be. And that's how you resolve the conflict. When this is happening, I'm assuming it's not such a smooth line of things escalate, someone's yelling. We use these mechanisms to identify their emotions. They calm down. You ask the simple question, how do we solve this problem? And then they say, oh, okay, here's how it happens. Like, I'm assuming... They could blow up again when you start trying to problem solve and then you rinse, repeat, rinse and repeat. You know, when I'm mediating high conflict cases, I might ethic label 10, 15 times a day in a, in a mediation session. I get people, they get riled up. I calm them down. We talk for a while. They get riled up and talk, talk them down. And, you know, that's normal. You, that's because that's just the way they are. They're, they're highly escalated and triggered. And, you know, it, you have to repeat the process. Two points. One, you just put a name to it, affect labeling. And for my own sense of, of memory, I have to say it out loud. So, right. so I remember what it is, affect labeling. The, the other piece is, you know, to, to Seth's point, that it might not be always a direct line. What I can't help but think of is if I'm in a conflict situation, I might have the sort of cognitive ability to to go through the affect labeling process with somebody who's escalating. But what's also going on for me, right? I feel like they're, you know, likely I'm not going to be in my best place either. Actually, what happens is pretty amazing. You're going to counterintuitive me again, aren't you? That's right. I yeah. knew it was coming. What happens is as you, as you develop this practice, this skill of affect labeling, reflecting emotions, you gain a new insight, which changes everything. And you learn that human beings are not rational. This whole myth of rationality that we've been lied to for 4,000 years doesn't exist. And we are not rational beings. Never have been, never will be. What separates human beings from other animal species are our emotions. No other animals have emotions. Only humans have emotions. Wait a minute. Wait. What about wait what about Seth's dog? Yeah, I was about to ask. They look so sweet. <laughs> no, dogs have affect, but they don't have emotions. And 
and all mammals have affect. In fact, all animals, all vertebrate animals have affect. So explain the difference for Pete's cousin who lives in, you know, somewhere in Iowa. Yeah. First of all, okay, <laughs> well, I'm going to go I'm get a little nerdy here. Do it. All right. So first of all, let me give you the definition of emotion. I keep it handy because I get challenged on this all the time. Emotions are biologically based patterns, patterns of perception, experience, physiology, action, and communication that are culturally created in our brains. They're created. We are not born with emotion. We start creating emotions at about 18 months of age through a process known as emotional categorization. And we are born with affect. And depending upon which model you use, I happen to use the model developed by Sylvan Tompkins, a 1960s psychologist, which is a nine affect model. You got these nine affect, these nine physiological states that arise in the brain, which are basically divided into pleasantness versus unpleasantness. And like an artist's palette, these affects are all combined in a whole in an infinite number of ways to give us different experiences that relate us to our environment. Okay. okay. And the thing about emotions is that when we take this affect and we concretize it through this emotional categorization process, it allows us to, to consciously know what we're feeling. Otherwise, we would just be slaves to affective reaction. It allows us to do causation. What What's causing me to have this feeling? Why am I angry? It allows us to make decisions about what to do next. We cannot make decisions without emotions. In fact, all, all this so-called rational thinking, none of it happens unless you're emotional first. And then finally, it allows us to communicate our emotions to somebody else. No other species can do this other than human beings. I'm going home petting the dog saying you've got no emotions. <laughs> yeah, right. You're, you're a hollow shell. But this is, this is really interesting. This it really interesting to me because if I'm understanding this right, what you're saying is, is as babies don't develop emotional response until 18 months, that when an infant cries, that is an affective response. Correct. Not an emotional response. Correct. Think about it. The emotional centers of the brain aren't even mature enough to, to activate until about 18 months. How can you have an emotion if you don't have the brain structure in place mature enough to have the emotion in the first place? Yeah. The baby is just a, just an affective physiological response to the environment. To like, I'm hungry now. I am uncomfortable. Right. I'm, happy. I'm happy. Right. But it's but not not emotionally. It's not an emotion yet. OK. It's an affect. You've broken my, but you can tell a little bit. You've broken my brain just a I know, smidge, I do. This. So, I, I recognize yeah. that. Everything I talk about is counterintuitive to everything I think we know. Pete, Doug's like, I do this shit all day long. I do this all day. <laughs> yeah, get in line, that. brother. Yeah. <laughs> I'm changing right. the way we think here. You're not the first one that told me that. <laughs> so let's go back to the, let's go back to the original question. What happens inside of you when you affect label somebody else? A, a number, first of all, every time you affect label, you program your reprogram your brain in a super positive way. You are building up your emotional database, your ability to categorize affect into emotion, which makes you more emotionally aware and allows you to emotionally self-regulate in, in more powerful ways. Number two, as I said before, we you, you you begin to gain this insight that human beings are not rational beings, they're emotional beings. And when you see somebody who's really angry, they're not being angry or irrational. They're just being emotional. And they happen to be having, a neg having an intense negative emotional experience. And what that does is it triggers our compassion response. And so instead of, it, it, it's, like ha it's like holding a baby and you're holding the baby and the baby just lets out a big poop, right? You go, ugh, yeah. baby, let me help you with that. That's compassion. 
Okay. And you say, oh, you're really upset. Let me help you. You say this inside yourself. You have, And so you begin to feel compassion. And the other thing that happens is that you get in, you, you create this literally a protective bubble around yourself so that no matter what somebody says, they can't hurt you. They can't trigger you. They can't do anything because you, they're just having this emotion. You're sitting there focused on their emotional experience, telling them what they're experiencing. And you're calm, cool, collected. You know what to say, how to say it, when to say it, no matter how intense the situation is. You're never at a loss for words. And you never, you never escalate anything. Everything calms down. So it's extremely powerful on yourself as the person who's the listener. Okay. Okay. Pete, I don't feel like you're buying this. No, I'm, I'm absolutely buying this. I'm feeling at every word Doug says, I feel less equipped to be able to handle this in a conflict situation. So I'm trying to figure out how am I going to, yeah, how am I going to start practicing this day to day? Okay. So here's how you do it. You've got to start in very low risk social situations where if you make a mistake or blow it, you won't embarrass yourself. My favorite practice laboratory, Starbucks. You walk into Starbucks, you go up to the counter, you, you place your order, give your credit card to the person at the cash register, and you look at them right in the eye and you say, wow, you look really happy today. You're, you're really happy and excited to be here. And most Starbucks people are, right? They're hired because of that. And then you shut up and watch what happens. Put your lab coat on and what, what's your lab rat going to do? And what you will observe is a big, bright smile. Thank you. I'm having a great day. I love being here. And by the way, all the, and all of a sudden, they just start talking. You're the first person that's ever listened to them in probably their entire career at Starbucks. And you just validated one simple little emotion. And they felt completely validated and safe with you and start talking. Okay, I just understood something new. And just this is so this is my it blows my mind. It's the Ted Lasso uh, thing. I learned from have you watched Ted Lasso? Either of you? Mm-mm. Both of you? Oh, yeah, I love yeah, that show. Love that show. And one of the things that Ted Lasso always does at the end of an engagement with somebody that he might not know, like it's this somebody in a bar who gives, serves him a beer or whatever. He always looks back at them and says, I appreciate you instead of thank you or something like that. Like, that's his line. I appreciate you. This is different. How so? First of all, you used an I word. Oh, okay. In this process, you never use I. Okay. You never use that old active listening crap from the 1950s. That was all developed by Thomas Gordon. He was a protege of Carl Rogers. Oh, we don't like him. I, I won't go into a long story of the history of all of this, but, but basically it morphed into this idea, what I think you're feeling is X. Total bullshit. Doesn't work. Never has worked. Never will work. Don't do it. But why does I, I appreciate you makes you smile, makes people smile? It, it does not. It, it aggravates people. Has anybody ever used that active lifting stuff on you when you were upset? Well, I don't know. I don't remember. Now okay. you put me on the spot, when man. People, <laughs> for, for people who have had it used on them, they will tell you, if, I feel it's very patronizing and manipulative and rude. It pisses them off. Okay. And when I teach my workshops and classes, Sometimes people say, well, what about active listening? And so we do an experiment. And I have them practice ethic labeling using an I statement versus practice using a U statement. And the U statement always wins, hands down. Always wins. Don't use I statements. Okay, so what's it, how, what would be the alternative then to turning that into a U statement? Okay, so it's okay for you to give a gratitude statement. And that's what you did. Yeah. You gave a gratitude right. statement. I appreciate yeah. you. 
And actually, the full gratitude statement would be something like, boy, when you served me that beer really timely and I was super cold, I really appreciate it because I really needed a place to calm down and relax. And you made that happen for me. Thank you. That's the full gratitude statement. But just saying I appreciate you is half of the gra- or a third of the gratitude statement. That's fine. But if you're going to read, read, if you're going to go the other way, then you say, you're really excited to be here today. You're, you look, you're really happy to be here serving people and, and making people happy. And it's really making your whole evening. If that's what you're reading from the data. So I'm thinking about this, Doug, because the interaction I'm about to tell you that I'm going to explain, I've done a ton of hundreds of times. I'll be at the grocery store and I'll engage in a little conversation with the person who's running it all through. The checker, right. And I'll say something like, you know, are you having a good day? And they might say, oh, it's long, or I just started my shift, or it will be kind of a downer type of a statement. Checkers checkers are that way. And I always say, feels good on payday, though. And then they always brighten up, and they're like, (laughs) yeah, it does. Or if it's a holiday, they're like, oh, it's the 4th of July, I'm here. I'm like, yeah, time and a half, though. Like, I try to point to the positive, and in my experience with, like the lab coat, as you described, now that I look back on this, they always perk up when I mention that part, like the reward, the, the why they're there, so to speak. How am I doing it wrong? Pete's going to love it if you tell me I'm doing it wrong. I can't wait. I've got a bell. I'm ready to ring it. So a couple of things. Number one, of another, uh, you're not affic- when you do that, you're not affic labeling. Okay. The second, the second no-no is never ask questions. Are you angry? Are you look you, you you look like are you are you angry? No upturned voice, no question. You never ask what somebody is feeling. Never. That will only infuriate them. Interesting. So don't do that. <laughs> because if you ask them, it's as if you can't figure it out, you fucking idiot. They, remember, their prefrontal cortex is offline. They probably don't know what they're feeling. Gotcha. And they get frustrated because they can't access their emotional database, so they can't tell you whether they're angry or not. And so because they're already in a heightened emotional state, that's going to just adding fuel to the fire. So, so don't ask questions. You, giving somebody pos- pointing out something positive is, is useful. But what is more useful is to say, you're really tired and frustrated that you're working overtime today, but you're really excited that your next paycheck is going to be really hefty. And that really gets you happy and excited. See the difference? It just, it sounds awkward to me. I know, I do see the difference, but it sounds like I've got a lot of assumptions in there that I might not know, but for the <laughs> fact that I screwed it up for the last hundred times, I've asked all these other people. <laughs> we have, I, t- I said earlier, we have this innate ability to read emotions. This goes back millions of years. Um, the evolutionary biology of this is really interesting. We only, as a human, as homo sapiens, we only develop the ability to speak. 230,000 years ago, just an instant in geological times. And we've been on the planet, or our predecessors have been on the planet for millions of years. How did we communicate before that really interesting event occurred that allowed us to start developing language? And by the way, that interesting event was mastery of fire. When our predecessors mastered fire, they could take animal meat and animal fat, render it and make it digestible. And it changed the caloric intake of the diets of those people. And that had, over the next 25,000 years, it, the brain, our brains radically expanded. And in particular, the pharyngeal nerve and the pharyngeal muscles that control all of our vocalization expanded 10 times. 
And now all of a sudden we could start making much more sophisticated sounds. And we went from grunts to proto-language and then to language. And then with language became abstract thinking. And we evolved from there. But before that, the only way we could communicate was through emotion. And emotions are communicated through the eyes and facial expressions more than anything else. So we are highly attuned to other people's emotions. The problem we have is that because of this 4,000-year lie that we're rational and not emotional and being emotional is irrational, we have let this innate ability just sit there without developing it. But it's powerful, you're n- and you're never wrong. It's 100% accurate. That's the thing that's so amazing to me. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it, like we let this sort of the, in you know, in not to put words in your mouth, but it feels like in your intention, this fictional uh, rationalization in all of us get in the way of the fact that we already have a skill that we know how to do. That's right. Well, we need to be trained in it, but it's, a, it's, it's easy to learn. It's really easy to learn. And it's just an innate skill. It's like riding a bicycle. I'm going to, I would try to like, Good thing Judge Tibbles isn't here. I always try to make arguments. I say judges will understand, right? You know, I mean, I've been as a lawyer for um, so 25 I'm years. S- I'm used to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Doug. You're, you know, you're speaking so eloquently about the mind and the emotion and how it all works that I forgot that you're a lawyer. You know, Pete, we usually gang up on, you know, Pete always feels gangs up when I have another lawyer on the show. So this is good. So the, what I was going to say to just simplify this is really our language gets in the way of communicating what is painfully obvious to both of us when we're in this situation, which is all the nonverbal clues that we were taking in and, and, and taking in and also showing because they're going both ways. That, that gives me a great entree into saying sort of, yes. Excellent. Excellent. Ooh, Pete, that's not a, it's a no. no that's not an, an idiot. But it wasn't a ring the bell. <laughs> but but you're right. But let me I want to reframe it a little bit. Please do. So our brains do not work well with what is known as unstructured data. And we all know this as lawyers, that we gotta take information and we gotta process it and organize it and put it into something we would call a legal brief or an argument that we can present to a judge or to a mediator or to somebody like that. So we we can only work with structured information. What we've learned to do from the time we were started to talk at about 18 months is we learned how to structure words as information. Learning language ability is all about structuring words as data. And because it's the only data we've ever learned to structure, we think it's the most important. And we let the more important data the intended meaning of the speaker and the emotions of the speaker slip by. Our brains just see them as completely unimportant because it's never learned how to structure intended meaning and emotion. And all communication is words, intended meaning, and emotion. And words only constitute 7% of a total utterance of information being communicated by one human to another. 7%. We focus on that 7% because that's all we've learned to focus on. And the other 93% goes right past us. So what we have to learn how to do is structure this data, intent and meaning and emotion. And that's what I teach. How do you structure this data? How do you structure emotional data so that you can use it? You have access to it. So your brain can immediately grab it. In this example, Doug, and I've seen actors do it when they're learning their skill of acting. I've actually seen it done on stage as part of a play. Well, they'll say the exact same word 50 different ways. Sure. 
And to your point, it's the same word, but it conveys different meanings. Speed, intensity, tonality, all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So the the word itself, the words themselves, but and we and we here's the other thing. So it's the words. Part of the problem is it's when you said language gets in the way. I would reframe it to say we just haven't learned how to structure the other part of the information properly so we can access it, use it. We're too focused on the word, less focused on it. Like it could be, it could be hi or hi. Exactly or, right. correct. So part of learning how to epic label is learning how to structure emotional data so that you can use it. You get immediate access to it. I can look at all of you guys and I can tell you exactly what you're feeling right now. And, you know, because I have a way of structuring the emotional data that you're projecting that makes perfect sense to me. And so you have to learn how to do that. It's not hard. It's easy, really. But you just got to learn how to do it. And. And so that's that's why words do get oftentimes do get in our way and we put too much weight on words and we're not looking at what's underneath it. Sometimes people will say stuff and, you know, we can tell there's emotion underneath it or they'll say one thing and do something else. You know that, you know, we can tell they're lying or they're not telling the truth. But that's at a very gross level where we're far more sophisticated in our ability to, to figure out what people are actually experiencing once we start paying attention to it. Where does this come into play for uh, somebody who's in a, let's say, a contentious divorce right. process, right? 8 a.m. day one, they've heard this podcast and they're, they want to figure out how to change. Like at what point, how do they, how do they change the, the nature of, of their relationship to divorce? And, and at what point, I guess there's a follow-on question, which is at what point should they just not engage, maybe just let the lawyers do it? Well, I guess it depends on how much money you want to spend. Yeah. You know, I mean, here in California, um, you can mediate a m- modest divorce for for less than six or seven thousand dollars. If you want to litigate it, you're going to spend between one hundred and three hundred thousand dollars. I vote for litigation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's just a, it's a it, you fight it. You know, how big how big your bank account and how much wealth you want to destroy? That's really the question. But sometimes people are so upset. They're willing to spend every dime of whatever their marital estate is to make to, to, for vengeance, to make the other guy hurt more than me. Well, also, Pete, we've talked about this before, is cases settle when they're ready to settle. And part of that is when people can get past the emotional aspects of it, and then they can settle. And I've had very difficult cases where I've had clients who have become much more self-aware during the process and will say... Well, Seth, this is the same settlement we talked about 18 months ago. And then I was saying no, and now I'm saying yes. yes. And we would say, <laughs> yes, I don't want to be like, I told you so. Um, and I'm like, well, what's different? And they've told me the two things. is One, I wasn't emotionally ready to do that. I was acting out of more of emotions. And you know, now that I'm farther away and I've spent a lot of money, <laughs> that you've written me letter after letter saying, don't spend, don't spend, don't spend, then now I'm now I kind of see it differently, right? It's a change of focus. So so here's how we shorten that shorten that from 18 months to maybe a lot less time. What you do is I think what you do with your clients and for people who are listening to this, whether you're divorce lawyers or people facing divorce, is learn how to affect label yourself. So let's say that you got an ex who's belittling you or cheating you or betraying you or whatever you what you need to do 
every single time you feel an emotion come up around the relationship, positive or negative, you say to yourself, I'm really pissed off. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I feel completely disrespected. I feel like I've been completely betrayed and cheated and completely ignored. I feel like I mean absolutely nothing to this person. And I'm anxious and scared because I don't know what the future is going to hold here. And I don't know how this is all going to shake out. And I'm really sad and upset and distressed that I have to go through this. I feel really distressed over all of this. It's really causing me to lose sleep. And I've got a lot of anxiety. And I'm sad. I feel a lot of grief over what could have been but wasn't. And every time I think about it, I feel like crying. And I feel abandoned and unloved. And I feel unlovable. And I don't feel like anybody will ever love me again. Say that to yourself. Every single time something comes up, go back and rewind, write those words down. Okay. And now they do that. And the guy's still giving them an offer that they think is shit. And the lawyer is saying, no way. I think I can do, I know I can do better in court than this. And then you got to decide how much money you want to spend. And any lawyer that says, I think I can do better than this. That's bullshit. <laughs> bullshit. Fire that lawyer and find another one. Exactly. <laughs> that lawyer, that lawyer is no opinion. Why is that? Why is that bullshit? Why is that bullshit for those listening? It's bullshit because what a lawyer should say is I can say, look, I've done the analysis. Here's my legal opinion based on all the information I know. And here's what I believe a court should do. And it can be a, a pretty narrow range because I've been doing this a long time. But I can't promise you the court will do it. Don't know what's going to so happen. We don't know what's going to happen in court. We know what I believe should happen. I can never tell you what will happen. That's the extent of your predictive power. And by the way, it's going to cost you 250000 bucks to take this to trial because we're going to need all these forensic experts and we're going to need, you know, you know, we need valuation experts and appraisers. Yeah, and I break it down even, I bring it down less than that, Doug. It's someone calls me and there's an issue and we have to file a motion and I'll say, here's what it's going to cost. I don't, like, because in the moment of a panic phone call to the divorce lawyer, they want action now. And Pete, we've talked about this. What can I do? I can reach out to opposing counsel and say, we have a problem. Can we try to land this turbulent plane and if we're not going to land it now let's make it a little less turbulent see if i can get response from opposing counsel to call their client to see what's going on and we're playing the telephone game back and forth and it turns out there's miscommunication and we're not the clients aren't really telling the lawyers the full story we have that or that never happens you know (laughs) no shocking or what happens is you don't reach out to opposing counsel or you do and you get nothing. So I write a letter. It's called a motion. We file it with the court. We set it for a hearing. We prepare our witnesses. We go to a hearing. We clear the dates. We have all that stuff. And then you go to court and you get an order. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe you're not the person follows the order. And then you're back in court. So, right. and it's a, it's a painful process, which is why I quit it. <laughs> and went back to school and got my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict study. And I, but like I said, 22 years, I was hardcore, hardcore trial lawyer. Tried over 200 jury trials, state, federal arbitrations, you name it, I did it. All usually pretty big cases, big, big dollar cases. Here's, here's what I tell lawyers, to do, especially for guys that do the kind of work you do, is when your client calls really upset, don't ask questions, ethically label them. 
you're really upset, you're angry, you're pissed off, you're frustrated, you feel betrayed. I mean, just label the emotions. You label it until you get those four responses. Now they're calm. And now you can have a conversation. Well, what do you want to do? Well, I don't know. I called up because I was really pissed off and I just wanted you to cut his balls off. I need somebody to be pissed off with me. And I was hoping you would be that person. That's right. But now, now, the, now that you calm me down, thank you very much. I can see that, you know, maybe this isn't, it's awful what's happening, but maybe it's not something that we should mess with and I shouldn't spend the money on it. Right. Doug, I cannot tell you how much, how much often I've told clients the best thing to do is nothing. Best thing to do is nothing. And, but, but you can give them an even greater service and they will love you. And they will also refer work to you by simply ethic labeling them, validating. That's amazing. Oh, I've got clients that call me all the time that said, Seth, I am now going to vent to you. We've had this conversation. I know that you're going to charge me for your time because you get paid by your time. Right. And I know that at the end of this conversation, you're going to tell me to do nothing. And I need a half hour of your time. And I'm like, okay, as long as we're clear. Right. Well, now in that half hour, you'll cut it down to five minutes. And you will give them a service that is priceless. That's perfect. You will listen them into existence and you'll calm them down and they will feel deep gratitude for the fact that you really get them and understand them. Yeah. And and I think in my profession, Pete, divorce lawyers don't do what Doug's saying is enough. I was just recently in a mediation and I saw my client respond in ways that in, in, I'm really pleased to have Doug here and I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I did what Doug was saying we should do. I didn't know this. I just was doing it naturally, I guess. But I got right to the root of what I thought was happening with her emotionally. I said, here's what I think is happening. You're anxious about the kids. And they're not being parented the way you think they should be parented. And then you turn to, well, why is that? And that why is the blame because it's the other. And now what do we do about that? And you get all riled up and you become more emotional. And like at the end of the day, she was like, oh my God, yeah, you pegged it. That's exactly what's going on. And it starts with my anxiety that the kids aren't getting taken care of. And you can go a lot deeper than that. And you should go a lot deeper than that because no emotions don't come one at a time. They come, like multiple emotions all arise at the same time. There's one emotion that presents like anger or anxiety. But underneath that are usually three or four or five, even six other emotions that are tagging along behind it. And if you really want to help somebody, you've got to label, you've got to go below and label all those other emotions. Yeah. Where you don't feel validated. You don't feel loved. You don't That's right. feel being listened to all that stuff. And, and if you notice, I have a structure for how I do this. And I've, 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 asked yeah, I was trying to figure it out. And I think it was alphabetical <laughs> by the third letter in the emotion. No, um, the, there, the, let me give you the structure because it's very <laughs> simple. I developed this. We'll, we'll just stick with negatives, but I also have a whole structure for positive emotions too that you would use for kids or other, other people too. But the negative emotions, you start with anger, the anger emotions, anger, frustration, annoyance, irritation. Then you go to dignitary emotions, not being heard, being disrespected, being ignored, uh, not being appreciated, not being supported. 
Then you go to the fear emotions, fear and anxiety, terrified, scared. Then you go to shame, humiliation, guilt, and embarrassment. Then the next level is sadness and grief, distress, anguish. And at the last level, the bottom level where everything starts is abandonment, feeling unloved, feeling unlovable, feeling betrayed. And you start with the presenting emotion, which is going to be anger usually, sometimes fear and anxiety. And you label that, and then you just start at the top. So you go, I would go from, oh, man, you're really anxious, and you're really angry. Nobody's listening to you. You feel completely disrespected. This is a completely unfair process. And you're a little embarrassed that you get so agitated so easily about this. And you're sad. And then you go down to, and you feel completely abandoned and betrayed. And that hits home. And that, see how it's structured? That's what I call structuring the data. All right. Now I got a tough question for you, Doug, which I think you're going to hit out of the park. Let's <laughs> see. Tough, but hit out of the park. Sarah, did that, Pete? I did. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Does this work if I'm talking to opposing counsel? Absolutely. I cannot tell you how many times I've de-escalated counsel and mediations using this. And here's the thing that it really is striking. Uh, you know, I don't see very many. Uh, frankly, lawyers are horrible negotiators. Um, I haven't. I I can count on one hand, and I've done over two thousand mediations. I can count on one hand the number of lawyers that came appeared before me that were good negotiators. Most of them are awful, and they do really stupid shit, like get upset. The moment you get upset as a lawyer and you start getting emotional, and somebody's not there to ethic label you. Your prefrontal cortex is shut. Your prefrontal cortex is shut down for the rest of the day. It'll take you six to eight hours to reboot yourself back to a place where you can give good advice. And I watch these people get crazy with me in mediations, and I just you're I can't say anything, but I just shake my head and say you're blowing it. Maybe they're putting on something for their clients, so they're showing their client how tough they are. But toughness toughness is doesn't doesn't play in negotiation. You're not there to win. You're there to make a deal. You don't win in mediation. There's no such thing as win in mediation. Either you settle it and make a deal or you don't. And lawyers bring in this adversary ideology, which, by the way, did you know the word zealous advocacy does not exist in any of our professional codes of conduct? It does not exist. It never has. It, it was taken out by the ABA, I think, in 1981. And at least in the California Code of Professional Conduct, it doesn't exist. And yet, Zealous advocacy. And by the way, the boundaries is that. Don't get me started on this. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm like, okay, we got like a five-hour show coming now. Here we go. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, you get me going on zealous advocacy. I mean, it just drives me crazy. Because it's, it, gives, it gives lawyers today permission to do whatever they want. There are, no, there are no guardrails. When really zealous advocacy has some very, very narrow guardrails, when it's appropriate to be a zealous advocate. And most of the time, those guard. You're not in that environment, so zealous advocacy is not appropriate. In fact, it's unethical to be that way. But too many lawyers see it exactly the opposite, and they're wrong. They're wrong ethically. There is a free continuing legal education in, on the Florida Bar website that says, crossing the line, zealous advocacy or unprofessional and unethical conduct. Well, and it gets back to the to I, I, at least the point that I'm getting away from this is that uh, you know we approach this from the perspective of people who are uh, going through the divorce process in some way, shape, or form. And this is a reminder that uh, the lawyers are human beings 
and that's right. They are in and they are emotional. So many ways, they no different than you are. They are They're emotional. No they are not yeah. rational. They right. are emotional. Right. And we, we that, that is all drilled out. Of I am so excited. Wow, Pete's oh, so excited. God. To be bashing the divorce lawyers right now. We are. He's loving we are, it. That, that emotional stuff is drilled out of us in law school. It. I've, I've done a lot of studies on this. It's why one of the reasons why lawyers have such a high divorce rate. Why there's so much dissatisfaction in the law is because we're trained the wrong way. We're trained against our humanity. And but lawyers are emotional. They can't even be rational until they're emotional first. And they, because they're human beings, the human beings can't be rational. How would you know how to be rational unless there was something in the environment that told you you had to bring critical thinking, for example, to bear on a problem? How do you even know that there's a problem there unless you have an emotional reaction to the environment that tells you I got a problem to solve? Right. Right. So we're emotional first, always. And then, and then, depending on the circumstance, we can take what Kahneman calls our system two thinking processes, decision making processes, and bring it to bear on the problem. And that's what we learn in law school. We learn how to be, think like a lawyer, critical thinking skills, analytical skills. But that all presupposes that we have, and they don't talk about the fact that we have an emotional experience that triggers all of that. Never once was that mentioned in law school, not once. And, and that's one of the reasons, Doug, that people avoid, lawyers avoid family law because they say, oh, it's all emotional. That's right. And what yeah. I always think is, so are your cases. You don't think if someone has a business that they're being sued? Right. <laughs> you lost a $5 million contract, was breached on you, that's going to cost you. That, that, that's not emotional. Exactly. Um, it's just the subject matter, right? Or criminal cases, right? I mean, you take a criminal case, you are you mounting a, a a defense for somebody who did something wrong or vile. Somehow, there is an emotional response you have to navigate to be able to take that case in the first place, right? And if nothing else, why did that person offend? Yeah, I've worked in prisons for tw- twelve years. I've met thousands and thousands of life inmates and trained them. Why did they offend? It's because their emotional upbringing was violent and abusive. We don't, murderers are not born. They're bred. So you, you're starting with an emotional, when you, you're a criminal defendant, you're a criminal defense attorney, you're starting with an emotional situation to begin with. Your client has been emotionally abused, horribly, probably. Well, Doug, look, I, I don't want to do it, but I have to put a fork in this because I clearly, <laughs> uh, I feel like we could talk about this uh, stuff all day long, and I, I absolutely love it. I feel like you have uh, offered us some in- incredible tools and practices to to help navigate complex emotional situations, or at least recognize when you're in one. Uh, right. And that's uh, a real gift. Thank you so yeah, much. I created a webpage sure. for anybody who's listening yeah, to this. Please. Let me give you the link. And there are resources. On, there are resources on the, on the page. Show notes yeah. from free to expensive, depending on what you want to do. <laughs> um, the, the 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 URL is dougnoll d o u g n o l l dot c o slash toaster. Oh, look at that! dougnoll dot c o slash toaster. My regular website is dougnoll dot com. You can email me at doug at dougnoll dot com. I answer all my own email. I all by myself. I don't have an entourage and. I respond to all my own emails, but dougnoll.co slash toaster will get you a, a free ebook that describes exactly what we've been talking about today. You can buy my book, Deescalate, my fourth book. Um, you can buy a video course, How to Deescalate Somebody. And then if you want to really dive into emotional competency, um, you can buy my uh, Develop Emotional Competency courses that are online courses. 
It's wonderful. Great set of resources, Doug. Thank you so much. DougNoll.co slash toaster. That will be in the show notes as well. But Pete, he doesn't say the best part of what he's already put on this webpage for us. It's the cartoon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the good stuff's hidden back in the woods. (laughs) It says, all the really cool stuff is in the deep woods. That's the quote. And it's a guy talking to a bear in between the trees is a merry-go-round, a hot dog stand. It's an amusement park. It is an amusement park setting. And so, Doug, thank you for joining us and putting out these amazing resources for our listeners. Um, I'm certainly going to dig into this much, much deeper. And I'll tell you, Pete, I'm going to have my lawyers take this uh, video course because all of this is about connecting with clients and de-escalating and getting to solutions. Yeah, I've learned that I started out discovering this in a really difficult mediation between a divorce couple, as it turned out. I discovered it. The science came out two years later. We acid tested it in the prison over the last 12 years. I've been teaching this stuff since I discovered it in 2005, and I've come to conclude it, it is the foundational skill of life. If you can master these skills, everything changes. Everything changes. You'll never have a fighter argument again in your life with anybody. I, I feel like, I mean, it's, it's yeah, I, I love the podcast that we do. I, I really do. I love this show. And it is, it's been a while since we have done a show that has left me uh, just in that state, just on the precipice of just straight up dumbfounded. Like, I feel like you've challenged so many of my, uh, uh, some long held assumptions uh, in a way that's going to, that's going to take some serious reflection. I, I really appreciate that. I hope others listen to this and, and have that same experience. That's, that's eye opening. You're walking that, you're walking the same path I did 20 years ago. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. Doug, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, deeply. Thank you so much. And thank you, actually, everybody for downloading and listening to this show. We sure appreciate your time and attention. Uh, if you would like to ask us a question, we would love to hear that question. You can just visit howtosplitatoaster.com. Push the button that says ask a question. There's a little form. You can type it out and uh, we will answer it on the show. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you, uh, Doug Knoll. On behalf of Doug Knoll and Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney. I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next time right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.